This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. The opioid crisis in Hamilton. Uh, This week on the Bill Kelly Show, of course, we're taking a look at the growing opioid crisis in our country, and in particular, what's been happening here in Hamilton. We've had uh, two very informative sessions so far, and I'm looking forward to the discussion this morning uh, in uh, studio here with us is an outstanding panel that uh, we want to introduce to you right now. Uh, Joining us is uh, Dr. Bill Krismanich, of course, who is the chief of ER with Hamilton Health Sciences. Uh, Bill, good to see you again. Thanks for coming today. Thanks, Bill. Uh, Dr. Sunil Udadi, Udadi, I'm sorry, doctor, uh, emergency physician at St. Joe's Healthcare. Good to have you with us today. Thanks for the invite. Uh, Heidi Klett is uh, with Addictions Worker with SunTrack. We'll explain what SunTrack is in just a minute, okay, so we'll understand exactly what's happening there. Good to have you here today. Oh, thank you for inviting and me. And Victor Sear, who's a chaplain at Mission Services. Victor, thanks for coming in. Wonderful to be here. Uh, and the 11th hour, by the way, because I know that you uh, got a call early this morning and asked to jump in, and we really appreciate you coming in on this. No Bill, let me start with you, if I could, about uh, the medical aspect of this. I had a very enlightening discussion with the medical officer of health, who was on part of our panel yesterday, uh, about treatment and about what needs to be done. And, and oftentimes when we talk about opioids and fentanyl and, and carfentanyl and things of this nature, and we talk about the illegality of this, and etc., we tend to lose sight of the fact that, that this is a regulated narcotic. This is a drug that's used extensively in in the medical field to, as a, a pain management tool and things of this nature. This is not just addicts that are, are, are looking for a hit on the street necessarily. An awful lot of the people that are being impacted by this uh, are introduced to it in, in with the best of intentions, aren't they? Yeah, that, that's true, Bill. Um, there's no doubt that if you look at within our medical profession, and when we talk about opiates and we talk about narcotics and people have many different names for them, but ultimately they're used for pain control and for other reasons. Um, interesting enough, there is alternatives to opiates as well. And part of that is trying to put a national framework together, and this is uh, what Dr. Upati is working on as well, to try to come up with some fairly good clinical guidelines that can help us steer us in how best to use that. There's no doubt that the medical profession owns part of this. Um, certainly by the use and the prescription of opiates and other type of substances, um, people can get addictive, and there is some good evidence that, uh, in fact, they can get addicted to these medications after one prescription. Um, that, that soon? Yes, and so there's some fairly good data that Dr. yapati has been working on with our national body to sort of look at that. Doctor, if you could move move us in this direction, because sure. I, I think a lot of people think that oh, I don't have any choice. If I've just had a, a knee replacement or I've just had major surgery of some kind, I need to manage pain. Uh, opioids seem to be the only option, but apparently not. No, uh, there are lots of uh, clinical practice guidelines that uh, Bill was talking about that suggest that uh, depending on the causes of the pain or the mechanism, as it were, like is it inflammation, is it degenerative things, sciatica, nerve damage, and so on and so forth, there are different clinical practice guidelines written by good Canadian experts that suggest that non-opioid strategies can be very valuable here. I don't want to get too technical about this, but how do these things work? Why why are they prescribed in the first place? How does how does an opioid actually work in in in, in dealing with uh, with chronic pain, for instance? Uh, okay, without getting too technical in physiology and all such things, I mean, any drug that a person takes will have a drug receptor in their body through which that drug's action is mediated. So different classes of medications work in different ways, like anti-inflammatories have certain effects. They don't have addictive properties because they're not psychoactive. The concern in this area generally will be, as well as having pain-killing properties or disease-modulating properties, do the drugs have psychoactive properties so that they modulate how you think, how you feel, 
Do they trigger certain pleasure centers in the brain and all such things? And that's the road to addiction. Some other members of the panel probably can speak to that better. I, I mean, for people that maybe even haven't had these, uh, Bill, I mean, but with maybe the runners, uh, and we all hear about the runners' high. Well, dopamine gets released, and all of a sudden you start feeling pretty good. Is is that's that's maybe a, a very elementary uh, comparator to to what we're talking about here. But is it the same sort of impact? It's it's physical. It has an impact on on things that are being released in the body. Yeah, that's correct. And so when when Dr. Patty's talking about receptors in your body, we have many different types of receptors, and we have a lot of pain receptors. And obviously, we're using medications to help modulate those pain receptors, but we also have a lot of receptors, what we call in our central nervous system or in our brain, and it affects our emotions and euphoria and this type of thing. And so we need to understand that, you know, with our, with, when you look at the patient population and people that, you know, actually become addictive to that, um, obviously they have a very high sensitivity for that type of response that you get from that drug. And, you know, we, we need to be understanding, too, is that this is from people from all walks of life that, you know, um, get into trouble with the uh, opiate drugs. And, and so when you talk about dependence, you know, and, and addiction, it's a kind of a catch-all term, but it really can be both on the physical as well as the emotional and psychological part of that drug that this is where, where people start to get into trouble. And that can happen to anybody. And so part of the scariness part of this is you cannot predict this. You cannot predict how one person's going to respond mm -hmm. versus the other. And if one's going to have those sort of withdrawal or uh, need to have that drug again, and, and that's the scary part. When that does happen and people find that they're uh, they're hooked, obviously what we need are support services. And that's why I wanted uh, to get Heidi and, and Victor onto the program today to talk about that. Uh, Heidi, I mentioned at the beginning that you, you work with an organization with mission services, of course, but it's called SunTrack. Talk to us about that program. Sure. So SunTrack Addiction Treatment Center um, is a program in Hamilton uh, that offers an actual community-based treatment program, a recognized program where men who are thinking about making change to their substance use or quitting it are able to participate in an 11-week program um, and learn about why, you know, what are the factors that have led me to using and what are some of the strategies and changes I can make in my life uh, to make change and reach the goal that I want. We also have um, drop-in groups for people that may want to explore you know, their substance use if they think it might be creating an impact for them and learn some strategies. Uh, so we primarily um, support men. We do have two uh, um, legal programs as well that we support men and women with. It's a drug treatment court program as well as a search program, which is substance abuse related crimes. And that's for people that are facing criminal charges involved in the legal system because of their substance use. And they're actually healing and restorative programs so that um, that they can access through their lawyers, uh, through lawyer, re lawyer recommendation, um, so they can actually work on their substance use as opposed to just being in jail and locked up where not a lot of healing takes place. Who do you see coming through the door? I don't want names, obviously, but I mean, as to, to Dr. Cervantes' point about, about everybody being affected by this, I'm, I'm sure that mm -hmm. you probably are sometimes surprised, or maybe not so surprised, by the, the, mm -hmm. the people that actually come through the program. Yeah, so it is a mix. It's true, you know, what you were saying that um, it can be anyone who's impacted becoming addicted to a substance. Substance does not discriminate. So we've had lawyers come through our program, police officers, mm -hmm. teachers, um, people that, uh, you know, have 
almost fit those stereotypes of what a drug addict is. So maybe out of work, homeless, you know, having a relationship breakdown. It's a real mix. There's not really any um, commonality that we see other than people that are carrying a lot of pain with them. There is about 90% of the clients that we have coming through the door has some form of trauma, childhood trauma, whether it's physical abuse, sexual abuse, that's a commonality, as well as some sort of grief. And so maybe a death of a loved one, uh, maybe losing parents at a young age, that would be the commonality that we see. When that sort of thing happens, Victor, let me bring you into the conversation here too. Do you find that, that with your work at Mission Services, that people that are trying to deal with that grief, uh, it's not always physical pain, sometimes it's emotional pain, tend to, well, the phrase I hear a lot of the time is self-medicate. In other words, I'm going to try to find a release. Yeah, that uh, is quite a commonality. Uh, In my own experience, being on the front line now for a large number of years, is uh, a lot of emotional pain people bring toward their addictive issues. And uh, as Heidi mentioned, it goes back oftentimes to issues in the past. Uh, In my own experience, I had substance abuse issues as a young man from 15 to 23. And I kind of looked at myself afterwards and thought, you know, why did I get into that lifestyle? And and so I realized for myself that um, it was a pain issue that was unresolved in my life. And so one of the things I try to do in my particular line of work is to try to bring that pain issue forward with the client, whatever it is that's afflicting their spirit and their emotions, to try to bring that forward to, so they can find healing and acceptance for themselves. And oftentimes that's a difficult task because people don't like to be able, uh, don't want to chat about some of the things that are very painful to them. But if you can build a trusting relationship with them, let them know that you're there beside them, supporting them, as those issues come forward, then you notice that as they begin to open up about their lives, uh, that acceptance and healing starts to show forth. But don't you find, though, that there's almost a human propensity now to suppress everything? I don't want to talk about it. I'll I'll deal with it. I can handle this. For sure. Which probably only makes it worse. Uh, It does, yes. And so the trusting relationship part is so important with the client because very rarely they're just going to come in and just open up their hearts right away. But if you build that relationship with them day by day, they get to know that, you know, you care for them, uh, that you want to see them get well, and over time they will begin to share about their lives. And then I bring some of my own experiences to play with it as well, but also to look at ask them to look at their lives honestly. And then as they do that, uh, the drug really is not the problem. It's the masking of the pain. So once the, uh, the pain issue comes forward and you get that identified, then oftentimes the drug use will just take care of itself and will dissipate. We've heard with drug use and abuse, uh, Sunil, in the past that there are stepping stones. Maybe you start with something and uh, you need more, you need more, you need more, and maybe you move up to opioids at some stage. Do you find that happens with addiction, that, that, it, yeah. that it might start with alcohol or something else and then progress up to something more dangerous like this? Not that alcohol isn't dangerous in abusive sure. situations either. Uh, sure. Uh, this is a good point for probably me to disclose that I actually do emergency medicine work half-time, and I also work in an adult chronic pain facility half-time, so I'm familiar with both sides of this aspect. And yes, I mean, the phenomenon in the opioid world you're talking about is it's a continuation of tolerance. So you start taking medications, and then you develop tolerance, uh, which has a clinical definition, and then it moves into dependence, which has a different clinical definition, and then finally into addiction. So where you're physically craving and depending on the drugs, and if you stop using the medications, you end up with withdrawal symptoms and cravings and so on and so forth. And as that escalates, so does obviously the need for something like this. Uh, Do you start looking for something else then? 
Well, ideally, in if if the patient's pain has been well, so I'm going to talk about physical pain. I'm not going to talk about mental yeah. health because yeah. that's out of my scope. But in terms of the physical pain, if they've been you know properly assessed and they have there's a good understanding what their mechanism of the pain is, then you can find you know is there an op- non-opioid strategy that can be used to treat that pain mechanism. So if you have arthritis problems, for example, anti-inflammatories are considered the number one medications for that. If you have neuropathic pain with sciatica or diabetic neuropathies or other types of nerve injuries, then there are other classes like gabapentinoids and duloxetine and other medications that are not opiates and treat this very well. And interestingly enough, in the last few years, at least in Canada, uh, cannabinoid products, so medical marijuana and various derivatives of that, are proving to be very effective and far safer, likely, than opiates. Uh, I mentioned on the panel yesterday that uh, we're, our family is familiar with scleroderma. We have a son who was mm-hmm. living with scleroderma. My wife's the president of the association uh, because families get involved, right, once once the diagnosis is made. And with autoimmune diseases like that, obviously when you have one, you usually have one or yeah. two more others than this. Anyway, I, 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 I was a host of a, a session last year when the conference was here, and it was about pain management. And it was phenomenal. First of all, the word opioid, I don't think it was ever mentioned. Because there are different things you can be doing like this that, to try to steer people away uh, from opioids. Of course, when you're dealing with something like chronic pain and people with scleroderma, rheumatoid arthritis, things of this nature are looking for those alternatives. Uh, that's obviously, I guess, why it's so important to have a discussion with doctors about that, to, to say, look, I'm not comfortable with this. Is there something else I could be looking into? So if I could interject here, yeah. that's a good point because when you talk about you know, autoimmune diseases, it's really important to have specialists involved who treat those diseases because some of those things, those diseases can actually be managed for cure or reduce the disease severity. It's, your audience should be very clear. Opioids do not cure anything. They mask the pain symptoms. They don't fix anything. Your disease generator that's driving your pain will still continue to get worse. So whereas if you have an arthritis problem or perhaps a scleroderma or some other issue, if that disease could be well managed or diabetes, your sugars could be well controlled and your neuropathies don't progress, those are curing the problem before you get hooked on the symptom management piece, which is opiates as one. But to that point, though, Bill, I guess the, the individual is not looking for long-term cure at this stage. They just want short-term relief from, from their physical or emotional pain. And that pill there can do that for them. I think it's a statement on our society. I think we live in a in a, a world of instant gratification. If you think of it, like we we we've we've done very well with uh, real time logistics. Um, we uh, you know you you can have a package delivered in the same day or the next day on internet. So there's this whole um, um, aura of, of of instant gratification and and real time and and I, I want it fixed now. And, and I think we're moving into that. And, and you know, what Heidi and, and Victor were saying about this is a long-term sort of engagement that we need to work with our patients and our clients to really understand where they're coming from. A lot of people don't want the time or, or have the need or they're in that, tor- that type of instant gratification that this is where these medications become very popular to them. And we're starting to see that designer sort of approach uh, with escalating potency of medications that we're finding on the streets just because of that, and they're feeding into that. When somebody comes into a situation like this and they say, I've got to get help, Heidi, uh, that that first discussion you have with them, do you you lay all this stuff out that you're not going to leave here in 28 days and be quote-unquote cured, that this is a process? Mm -hmm. We do. We talk about that. This is a journey. 
right? Um, and cha making change to the substance use is almost just like a small fraction. Of, because, what, you know, we look at, what I look at when I meet with a person is that, okay, I think that substance use is a symptom to other underlying things going on. And I almost think of, you know, the substance use, maybe that's the roof of the house. And if we were to, all the bricks that hold up that roof, we look at what are those factors in your life that you've experienced or are currently experiencing that's holding up your substance use. So maybe trauma, stress, all these things, you know. Maybe you do have a sensitivity to it because it runs in your family. There's a bit of a genetic component. Um, it's also been shown that, you know, in cultures um, and women that are under a lot of stress when they're pregnant, that can impact the development of the baby as well to be a little bit more prone, a little bit more vulnerable to substance use issues. Um, and so we look at if we are going to take out this substance use problem, how are we going to rebuild the bricks? How are we going to lay a new foundation? So we do explain it's a long-term process and it's looking at overall how do we increase our well-being. And like Victor said, the substance use issues will generally take care of themselves. We have an outstanding panel here in studio and uh, we'll uh, introduce them to you once again, Dr. Bill Kuzmanich, of course, is the chief of ER, Hamilton Health Sciences. Uh, Dr. Sunil Upadi is an uh, emergency physician at St. Joe's Healthcare. Uh, Victor Sear, chaplain at Mission Services. And Heidi Klett, addiction worker with SunTrack uh, with Mission Services here in Hamilton. Sunil, before we, we get into some of these other stories and, and uh, some of the advice that we're talking about here, you brought some statistics in here. And I was looking through these earlier this morning. Uh, as to the the impact that this is having on this Hamilton community. You've done a lot of research into this. Uh, uh, please talk to us about that. So part of tackling any problem in any medical or research environment is you want to do a needs assessment, as it were, to figure out what the scope and the breadth of yeah. the problem is or the challenges that you might be dealing with. So we look for regional information or provincial or national or whatever it is uh, regarding this. So there was a source that came out from the Ontario Drug Policy Research Network. There was a report that just came out in November, so it's pretty fresh data. So for, if your audience doesn't know, Ontario is divided regionally into 14 LINs, so Local Health Integrated Network. So the information for our LIN, this report has it, the information for all the LINs, but for our LIN here in Hamilton, Niagara, Brantford, um, this LIN is in fact the number one consumer of opiates uh, in the public uh, prescription database, so Ontario Drug Benefits Program or Ontario Works. So this is accurately tracked information, and this LIN is the number one consumer of opiates amongst the 14. Did that surprise you? Uh, yeah, it did. I would have thought somewhere in the GTA would yeah. have been perhaps a little mm -hmm. higher. We're number four uh, for patients who are on registered methadone maintenance plans for addiction care. Uh, we're number three overall for emergency, emergency department visits related to opiate uh, use and uh, misuse and overdoses. Number four overall for hospital admissions related to opiate misuse and, uh, and uh, overdoses. And then for deaths, at least in 2013, which is the latest set of numbers that the coroner's office has, uh, we were number three annualized overall. So Hamilton has a real problem compared to the other 14 regions in Ontario. There's more information on the <coughs> City of Hamilton website under the public health tab. There's actually an opioid surveillance and monitoring um, tab that has some interesting week-to-week -week information because the province is moving towards um, real-time tracking and well uh, dissemination of information of what's going on. Uh, Bill probably could speak to that more if he's involved with that. Sure, Bill. Just some of the data like that we're getting from the uh, public health is, is that, in fact, you know, if you look at 911 calls, uh, they're seeing approximately 36 to 40 calls a month. Uh, for opiate overdoses or opiate uh, toxicity. And if you actually look at what we're doing with naloxone, and, and certainly that's a reversal agent that can have profound effects as far as uh, opiate overdoses, 
um, with public health and along with the Ministry of Health now uh, handing out naloxone kits. Um, they distributed something like 365 kits uh, this year alone, and uh, they expect at least uh, what they've seen is approximately about 69 to 70 patients that were revived using those kits. Uh, so certainly from emergency departments, you know, we, this, this is a very common presentation we're seeing in our ED. Uh, we can see anywhere from 50 to 100 patients a month. Um, sometimes it's up to 40, 50 patients a week of what we're seeing with people with opiate, opiate-related um, um, presentations. And that may mean overdose. It could be toxicity. It could be complications uh, from the use of opiates as well. Uh, and so, and then if you actually look at the death rate, you know, from the office of the coroner, I believe the last data we have here is in 2015, where there was actually 37 Hamilton residents who, who, who died because of opiate toxicity, and about 10 residents who died due to toxicity from opiates and other substances and alcohol. So it's a real problem. Um, I'll just interject here sure. with the naloxone piece. I don't know if you want to chat about it more. Absolutely. Right? Um, I tell my patients, and I suspect a lot of other emerge docs too, there's a, this misperception, if you will, that naloxone could be a, a reversal cure, and it's the antidote. So if you take the antidote, you're okay. I don't tell our patients that. I said, treat your naloxone pen, do your naloxone kit like an EpiPen. You've used it mm -hmm. to save your life in a dangerous allergic reaction, but once you've used that, you come to hospital yeah. because you may have just a few hours, and especially now in the carfentanil era where we have you know, catastrophic deaths if you have with carfentanil because it's so potent um, and you don't know what it's in. Like it's, I've seen it personally in my practice in, merge, in patients who are taking crack, looking to get stimulated and high and revved up, yet they end up in the hospital comatose and respiratory depression and or near death. And they're like, what happened? I was supposed to be all high and jumped up, except I'm now in a hospital almost dead. So, well, you probably had carfentanil in your crack. But there, uh, therein lies the problem. And we, we were told this yesterday, and, and this is a revelation, I think, to a lot of us, that naloxone is not a cure. It, it buys you time. It buys you time, mm -hmm. correct. That, in other words, now you make that 911 call and go to the hospital. You can get to the hospital as soon as you can because the, the naloxone will wear off, won't it, doctor? Uh, certain long-acting opioid preparations, yes. The, the naloxone benefit will be lost within a few hours, and then the sedating effect of the opioid or the respiratory depression and possible fatal uh, outcome would persist. Bill, when somebody walks through the doors or is presenting or is brought in, and as, as the case if it's a 911 call, how does how does this present? How does an overdose present? Or do you what, do you have to obviously if the it's I, sometimes I, I you can probably talk to the person sometimes you can't. It's complicated. See, see, like we 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 like to package things into nice, neat packages that mm -hmm. we can talk about opiates, we can talk about other substances, but in fact, a lot of the times it's mixed. In other words, people come in with what we call toxidromes, which is a reaction to a number of drugs. And often what we're finding is not just single use, but we're seeing multi-use of, of multiple type of drugs that are bringing in what we call toxidromes. So a lot of our training in, and, and treatment of patients is, is not zeroing in, Bill, on, on one drug. You know, don't, don't, don't go for the big uh, um, prize, as we call it. It's basically, let, let's figure this out. Let's hover. Let's figure out what other type of drugs are concerning. If it's strictly mostly got to do with opiates, then, you know, what we talk about, is, and this is really important, is what we call this, this therapeutic window. And anytime a physician gives a patient a drug, 
the whole idea is to find that dose where you get the maximum effect of what you want that drug. But you know as well that there are side effects and, and there's something behind that drug that we would be worried about. And so if you took too much of that drug, then it would actually be a detriment versus you know helping you. And so we call that that therapeutic window. And obviously we want to use drugs that have a very wide therapeutic window. What we're finding and, and what Sunil was talking about, as these designer drugs are coming on board, uh, the fentanyls, the carfentanyls, the mixed doses and things, that that therapeutic window is becoming narrower and narrower. And so the, the dangerous part of this drug is to get to where you need to be is so narrow that you just fall off the cliff and you stop breathing. And, and, and it goes from uh, as quickly as that. And so uh, what we're seeing then is obviously the biggest problem being respiratory depression where people mm -hmm. just stop breathing. And, and in a circumstance like that, then, is, is it almost like trying to throw darts at a dartboard to try to figure out exactly what you're dealing with. I mean, if these are street drugs, drugs rather, Sunil, uh, you don't know, as you just mentioned, what, what they're laced with and the impact that's yeah. having on the body, too. That's true, and Bill's comments are right. So when you have a mixed overdose, you just deal with your priorities. You know, is, is the patient breathing? Are they in shock? Can they, are they conscious? Can they maintain their own protective airway reflexes and various other vital things just to stay alive? And if not, we intervene, and then we do some investigations, we provide supportive care. If there's an indication for antidotes on your best guess saying, well, it's probably an opiate, so let's try some naloxone. So there's a little bit of shooting blindly here because it, uh, if the patient comes in comatose, you have no idea what's on board. So you go with what your experience is, what your public health information suggests, and uh, your training and say, okay. Uh, and quite frankly, a lot of um, overdoses don't have antidotes. So you just ride them out with supportive care, making sure that they're okay in terms of breathing and oxygenation and, you know, circulatory status, what have you. And then you just wait for the stuff to wear off, which if you're lucky, most of the time it will, but not necessarily with narcotics. There is a... When, when are they out of the woods? Um, depends on the... If we're going to stick with opiates, yeah. different opiates will have different what's called a half-life, which is how long it takes to eliminate from your body. So some of them will be gone within a few hours. Um, some of them go for quite a long time. Like, for example, morphine... Generally, the recommendations are, I'm not a toxicologist on this, but generally you observe patients for about four to six, six to eight hours. If you have somebody who in Hamilton, for example, has a methadone overdose, and we've had lots of those over the years, right? The, that's a patient that probably has to be admitted to hospital because the half-life of methadone can be, you know, day and a half, two days before everything starts to wear off. So they, you can't send them home after giving them naloxone because as soon as the naloxone's gone in two hours, the methadone kicks in and they go back into respiratory depression, like Bill said. Victor, you uh, went through the uh, the naloxone uh, protocol, the training for it. Uh, yesterday we had one of the kits in here, and I was looking at it as we were talking about this. Uh, and it was very timely that you went through the program, wasn't it? Oh, yeah, it was uh, quite an experience. We had the training on Friday, and then uh, three, four days later, we had an experience where uh, one of the clients had overdosed. And one of the other clients had found him unresponsive. We, uh, we took him out, put him in the rescue position, and um, we saw that his breathing was uh, getting worse. And so we uh, administered the drug to him, and it was amazing. Within seconds, he was up and around. And um, then, of course, 911 came in. We had called as soon as we found out his condition. And uh, when, they, when they arrived, he said, I don't need to go to the hospital. I'm fine now. And, you know, we all tried to convince him, like, this is only temporary. You need to go find some medical attention now because, you know, this uh, drug's going to wear off, and you're going to be back where you were. So... We eventually were able to convince them to go to the hospital, but uh, it was quite a harrowing experience that evening. But the people you've talked to, and, and that's a, a dramatic story in and of itself, but you've mentioned this, and it reinforced what we heard yesterday, and, and from uh, Deputy Chief Consalo when he was here on Monday, 
a lot of people that are going through these experiences right now don't want to call 911 because they're afraid of the legal ramifications. They don't want to get arrested. Absolutely. Yeah, that's the big thing because the people we, of course, deal with are struggling with drug problems and they sometimes will have the drugs on them. And so they don't want the police to be a part of that. So we re- reassure them that, you know, the most important thing is for you to get your medical help. Don't worry about the legal ramifications at this point. Well, and that's actually part of the the SunTrack program, isn't it, Heidi, to, to let them know that, look, it, we'll deal with that later. Get get healthy first. Yeah, so we always promote, um, we always encourage clients to seek medical support when needed. Um, another factor is not just a legal, the fear of legal ramifications, it's, it's there's still a lot of myths and stigma about why people use who is considered a drug addict. So a lot of the information that we hear, not only in Hamilton, but when I've worked in other cities as well, is that when people do actually reach out for medical support, hospitals, doctors, they're not treated the best. Um, they're not treated well in the hospitals. And with the long wait time there, if they're not seen right away, um, they can actually start to go through a significant withdrawal. And so it can uh, be very painful um, emotionally, physically, staying there waiting for help. Um, if it wasn't overdose, if they went for their supports and so on. So um, I think it is improving the more that we talk about it, but there needs to be a better understanding of how hospitals and, this and, and medical systems, even legal systems, can work with people because no one signs up to be an addict. No one says, I want to grow mm-hmm. up and be this. It's all these factors that we talk about, trauma, stress, childhood stuff, perfectly aligning to make someone vulnerable to that. Um, but unfortunately, the idea that's still out there in society is that it's a moral issue. You know, if you just kind of, you know, get strong, have the willpower, you'll quit and you care, and that's not what it is. So when we keep treating people bad through a stigma lens, it just isolates them more and makes them almost take their health in their own hands because they'd rather do that as opposed to being criminalized or being treated so badly in the health system that's supposed to help them. How do you get over that stigma then or that perceived stigma and and you're right many of them that you've talked to I'm sure probably experienced it from time to time which is why they're hesitant to to go and talk to the authorities about anything and seek help. Yeah, I think the biggest thing we can do as a community, like we're doing now, is talking about it. Often, you know, before, and I know it still happens in some communities, is that, you know, not it doesn't happen in my community, it's not my issue, like not in my backyard type of mentality, or that, you know, stereotype of what an addict is. So it's a people, you know, in the homeless shelter, just in the alleyways, right? And that's not what it is. So the more we talk about it and create awareness and, and, and see it through a lens of trauma, So knowing that if people have traumatic childhoods or any trauma in their life, they're more likely to develop this. Um, There can be genetic components. People are sensitive, right? And they don't plan to become addictive, but their body just does. And so looking at through all the possible lens at SunTrack, we take a biopsychosocial approach to addiction. So we understand that there can be biological factors, psychological factors, emotional factors, as well as environmental and cultural factors that can lead to someone using. And that's why, you know, again, rebuilding that house of uh, uh, that I talked about earlier, rebuilding a house uh, to have a, a life free of substance, as we look at those factors that led to that path. Um, and so we need to consider all those factors. But I think talking about it is the biggest thing we can do. I can so, jump in here yeah. for a second. This is a really an important point um, where, uh, for example, in the medical profession, prescribers may not may not be thorough or really digging down into these kind of granular issues about risk. So uh, from a harm reduction strategy, one of the things, if you're ever going to start a patient on any medication, it doesn't matter, blood pressure, cholesterol pill, diabetes pill, whatever it is, you would want to 
look at risk factors for potential bad outcomes. And in the opioid world, these are very multifactorial. So, mm. you know, childhood issues yeah. and psychological uh, issues, socioeconomic issues, these are all proven predictors mm-hmm. of opiate misuse and abuse. And at least in the ER setting, I can tell you, and Bill can probably attest to this, this is hard to do for us in emergency departments because, quite frankly, we have time pressures that sure, we yeah. have competing priorities about getting people through the departments and you know saving lives and arranging follow-ups and all such things. So to spend this kind of time with one patient to determine whether or not you should prescribe opiates or not is a really difficult thing to do. In well, an especially ER in a little examination cubicle in an ER right now, yeah. you're supposed to basically sit down and do something that you probably should take a week and a half to do, I mean, to get all this information about their background and get them to open up. I mean, the yeah. other element of that is, is the patient being forthcoming with information. A different set of challenges. I can tell yeah. you in my pain world, when I work in our pain offices, our intakes at least take an hour, if not longer, whereas in emergency departments, you may be trying to make that decision within less than five minutes. Yeah. Billy, on to the next patient. We're talking about stigma, and <coughs> does it help? I, I, I'll, I'll use this parallel. I mean, there was a stigma, and still is, I think, about mental health issues, for instance. But nobody ever wanted to talk about those. And what, what seemed to partially break through was, was when celebrities, famous people, started to come through and said, hey, mm-hmm. I'm dealing with that. Uh, Mike Wallace, the CBS uh, news guy from 60 Minutes, and many others. There's a, a long list of them now that have done that uh, over the last number of years. Uh, does it help to bring that up now to let people know that, you know, these are not junkies we're talking about. These are people with, with addiction problems. I mean, Victor, you were mentioning, of course, just a few minutes ago, uh, Prince basically died of a, of a drug overdose. I mean, we did not know that he was addicted to pain meds uh, for a variety of medical reasons, et cetera. I mean, it, it can happen to anybody, and we need to know that and talk about that. Yeah, Heidi's right, too. Like, it's just a matter of talking, and thank you for having us on, because part of this is just getting out there and, and, and having that conversation. And although how difficult it is, um, there's no doubt in our minds that we see patients that come from all walks of life, and in fact, they could be me in front of me. Um, these are people that are highly educated, people who have had other different educational, socioeconomic backgrounds. Um, but, you know, the common theme for all of us is that there's you know, people have this black hole and they try to fill it. And sometimes it's unfortunately filled with with uh, substances such as opiates. And so I think to start off with, Bill, we just need to keep talking about this. I think, you know, you, you can just look at the controversy that happened in, in Vancouver and the east side with Insight, which is, you know, a harm reduction program mm-hmm. and, and the controversy at the federal level. And now they're, they're coming around to having that those open discussions about looking at not only harm reduction, but also, you know, treatment for patients with addiction, because there's two arms to this. There are a lot of people that, who are not looking for for, for help as far as getting rid of their addictions. Um, they're people, they're, they're, they're like any one of us, and, and we need another system in place too to help them with their substance addictions, to help them get through that journey. And at one point in time, the evidence is there that eventually getting to know these people and honestly understanding them yeah. um, can really make a difference. But just marginalizing them, pushing them off into the fringe of, of our society and expect it doesn't, it's, it's not a problem, is not helping them. It's not helping our society. Well, because of uh, the misperceptions some people have. I mean, there are political decisions that come in. I don't want to get into the political realm. We'd be here for another six hours. Mm-hmm. But, you know, needle exchange programs. And because there are public officials that say, oh, that just encourages use. Uh, and uh, there are statistics, obviously, that indicate that's not the case at all. But yeah. but they seem oblivious to that. And, and I think we have to have that same discussion about what we're talking about here, don't we? Yes, we do. 
We're just uh, about out of time. Uh, this has been extremely insightful. I want to thank all of you for being here today. Uh, Heidi, uh, Sunil, uh, Bill, and uh, and Victor, uh, this is, uh, I hope, opened some people's eyes to this, and hopefully this will be a, a catalyst, I think, for that ongoing dialogue that we need to have. Thanks so much for being here today. Thank you, Bill. Thanks for Thank you. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.